You're listening to On Human Rights, where we talk to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law. We are broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Kenneth Cameron. Lee Swepston was appointed as the ILO's Director of the Department of Fundamental Principles and Rights at Work and Senior Advisor in Human Rights in 2004. He has worked in many areas, including children's rights, indigenous and tribal peoples, non-discrimination, abolition of forced labour and freedom of association. Lee retired from the ILO in 2007 and became a consultant. He lectures on international human rights and labour law within the International Human Rights Masters Programme at Lund University. Thank you for joining us today, Lee. A pleasure. So what are the covenants and why were they adopted? Well, the covenants were adopted in 1966. This was following the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, and the idea was to make the Universal Declaration operational. It took a long time to draft the covenants uh, because there were huge issues at stake, one of which was the Cold War. The idea of the separation between civil and political rights and economic, social, and cultural rights was something that arose very early in the discussions, um, and it was really East versus West. The idea on the West side that only civil and political rights are real, on the Eastern side, that why have civil and political rights if you can't eat and, and, and have a job? So that was uh, that's how it came about that there was a separation. But the idea was to operationalize the, uh, the, the Universal Declaration. The fact that it took 10 years for the covenants to come into effect to acquire the sufficient number of ratifications to come into effect was a measure of how difficult it was for many states to wrap their minds around all this. Equally, the idea that only the civil and political rights covenant had a, a supervisory mechanism um, was an early indication of the seriousness, <coughs> sorry, the seriousness with which uh, the economic, social, and cultural rights were taken, especially by the West. Um, and all, equally, the fact that the East was not all that particular, uh, all that eager to see the things they cared about supervised closely. So that's what it was for. The covenants drew on existing international human rights law. Uh, in fact, Articles 6 to 10 of the Economic, Social, and, rights, uh, Economic, Social and Cultural Rights Covenant is a pretty fair summary of some of what the ILO had done up until that point when they were drafted. It's, but it's summarized and, and very much more uh, concise. And what impact have the covenants had on labor law? That's a double-edged question. Um, the covenants themselves are not taken all that much into account in most countries where labor law is concerned. What they did do, and this was extremely valuable, was to ensure that the labor law questions being dealt with by the ILO, not only forced labor, discrimination, child labor, were considered as human rights questions for the first time because with the Cold War divide, the ILO had really opted out of this human rights discussion saying, okay, we're doing labor rights. You guys get on and have your, uh, have your discussions and get all the law professors in to talk about it, and we're going to do our practical work. 
Now, on the other hand, uh, the covenants also give cover to human rights organizations that want to talk about labor rights at the national level because they are, by now, extremely widely ratified. Almost every country looks at them and says, oh, well, we can ratify that because they're general principles. They are um, the, st the statement of the general principles that to which the ILO and in its own field, UNESCO and the other organizations, devote much more in-depth consideration on particular subjects. So they're complementary, entirely complementary, and there is no contradiction at all. We have been lucky so far, and by so far, I mean since 1948, actually since even a little earlier, since the, the uh, Covenant of the League of Nations and uh, the Charter of the United Nations, that never has an international agreement gone backwards on human rights. There has been a solid progression, each one building on what was there before, and each one being reread with time to come up to the level of what else was going on in the international world. So it's, it's complementary. These are two complementary systems that work together and, um, and strengthen each other. And do you think that the covenants go far enough? And um, what could be improved? Well, there's a supposition there that the covenants could be revised, and they can't because the political uh, climate is not what it was even in 1966. Uh, could they go further? That is really up to the supervisory bodies now. Uh, the ILO and the treaty bodies of the United Nations read the instruments and try to reapply them to contemporary situations, to expand upon them. The idea of the general comments that are made by the treaty bodies of the UN and similar things been done by the ILO, is to take the words of the covenant, the words of the ILO convention, and expand upon it. That is how they can go further. Uh, for instance, when the ILO convention on discrimination was drafted in 1958, no discrimination on race, color, sex, etc. Nobody was thinking about sexual identity or gender identity. Nobody was thinking about sexual harassment. Um, those terms would have been totally incomprehensible to the drafters, and to almost everybody in the countries where they were being applied. But as understanding has grown, the idea that sex is the subject, not just the biology, has, has grown. Uh, the same thing on, on color. That was taken to be a fairly simple question of, are you black, are you uh, oriental, anything like that other than white? Um, uh, has become a much more subtle question as mixed identities grow, as, as people uh, have a different racial identity within one society than they do in another, e even the same people. Um, so the whole question of all of these things has developed through supervision and through understanding. What advice would you give to people who are interested in working in human rights? Depends on which way you want to go. Um, there are essentially two broad streams. There are the people who want to uh, work on the theory, the academics, the people who want to expound upon the principles, develop the principles in theory, um, want to work in conferences. Uh, this is absolutely right and essential. There are other people, and I confess I am not somebody who does this, and I have the greatest respect for it, who want to go labor in the ditches who want to go and help people one by one 
community by community, that is another side of it. I near the, the in-between things, like many international officials do, serve time in the field and in headquarters. So anybody who wants to do this should sit down and think about what it is they want to do. Now, my technique is a dark room and a large glass of, of Jack Daniels. But people have their different ways of, uh, of coming to a determination of what, do I want to work with people? Do I want to work with individual people? Would I, would I rather work in a more formal atmosphere? All of it contributes. And uh, it's essential that people find what they're good at and do it. Now, there's also the other side of it. Do you want to work with an NGO? Do you want to work with an international organization? Do you want to work with a National Human Rights Commission? Do you want to be a teacher? Um, so if you want to work in human rights, do it. But there's another side of it, too. Human rights work is not fast. There are vast numbers of violations of problems. Um, they persist. In the 40 or more years I've been working in this area, certainly I've seen a lot of progress. But there are also a lot of questions that are still there that were there the first day I came into the ILO in 1973. So uh, it's, it's a tagline, but it, it, it resonates. If you have a short attention fan, uh, a short attention span, find another line of work because you're not going to go in and, and wave the flag of human rights and see everything corrected. It doesn't happen like that. Human rights is bloody hard work. We just spoke with Lee Swepston, former director of the ILO's Department of Fundamental Principles and Rights at Work and senior advisor in human rights. Thank you for your time today, Lee. Pleasure. On Human Rights is broadcast from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Kenneth Cameron. Thank you for listening today.